0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. July 13th, 2023, the world is burning edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. In a toasty but not intolerable Washington, D.C., I'm joined, of course by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. We're both back. Were you on vacation? I was on vacation. I don't know if you were on vacation last
1: week. No, I wasn't on vacation, but since you and Emily were on vacation, I was a yeah. free-floating right. amoeba in the world. That, is,
0: that was a long so, horn. That was a long horn.
1: You hear? That's New York City outside. That's how we resolve our differences when it's hot. <laughs> is just lean on the exactly. horn. It's a
2: nice teaser for later on.
0: <laughs> uh, that other voice you heard is first-time host Marin Kogan. Maren is senior correspondent at Vox, where she covers a lot of things, but but especially transportation. And Maren, you may remember, was part of our favorite segment of 2022 where, when we talked about her piece about Strodes. And so we thought, given that Emily is, is still out, we would have her back for the whole show and, and hit some of her favorite topics today. Hello, Maren. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. I was just going to say, I hope it's not going to be the last time.
0: We shall see. I don't know. I can't. I hate to make <laughs> predictions.
2: See how bad I messed this up.
0: <laughs> this week on the Gap Fest, uh, the heat wave across the South, the brutal rainstorms in New England, smoke everywhere. How can we live with this more extreme, more dangerous, more erratic climate that we have inflicted on ourselves? Then Twitter has been the central platform for American political conversation for almost a generation. Is Threads going to unseat it? Would that be a good thing? Is Twitter going to survive uh, the, the assault from threads? Then Marin has an important and kind of worrying new article in Vox about car ownership, which has become a key tool for getting into the middle class, but has become more and more expensive and precarious. We will talk about uh, whether it should be a right. Should Americans have the right to own a car? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify
0: July 4th was the hottest day in Earth's recorded history. There's a heat dome across the Southwest that is bringing unbreakable temperatures of 110 degrees plus throughout that region. Death Valley is about to have the hottest recorded moment ever in the history of the globe. Texas and the Southeast are experiencing heat and humidity that have pushed wet bulb temperatures above the limits of human tolerance. So have countries like Pakistan and and other countries in Asia, water off the coast of Florida, ocean water, is more than ninety degrees. It's a hot tub ocean. There's smoke everywhere. There are heat waves in Europe, a hundred year rainfall events in Japan and India, not to mention the catastrophic rain and flooding in Vermont. And and remember, as people like to point out, this is probably one of the coolest summers of the rest of your life. John, how are we going to survive this?
1: We're going to um, p- paint everything in that white paint. There was a story about it that's, pr- that's been produced at Purdue. Um, the Times had a story about it this week. If you paint with this white paint, which is the whitest paint known to man, whiter even than me, if you paint a building with it, it cools the temperature of the building by 9 degrees um, and 19 degrees at night. Um, so that's going to solve everything. It's not going to solve everything, but it was a one tiny hopeful fact um, it has some slight downsides too, which
0: You're but, distracting, like engage with the question. Engage I with know, the I know I'm trying man. not
1: to start I'm not trying I'm trying not to start off on an incredibly downer note because also June was recorded to be the hottest month um ever. Um one in three Americans are under some kind of um heat threat. Um it's just awful. 2023 is likely to be the hottest year on record, and as you said, it's only going to get worse. Um, so I don't, I don't know how it's going to get better.
2: The fact that we're getting excited about white paint, I think, is a sign <laughs> that we're in serious trouble. Um, I don't know. I, I personally, I hope that this is the wake-up call. We finally. I mean, how many times are we going to say that, right? But it feels like the things that climate scientists have been warning us about for years are are here, and it feels very visceral. I think for millions of people. Um, so I'm hopeful that this. Sparks some serious action finally, and people can come together and do something about this.
0: To the white paint point, Marin, like we've clearly lost the war on emissions, right? That emissions continue, CO2 emissions continue, the destruction that is accelerating the heating of the, the planet continues. You, you know, there will be, it, it may not be the worst case scenario, but it's obviously the planet is getting hotter and it's getting. Uh, more erratic in its weather and and more dangerous. That is that is definitely happening. And one of the reasons we failed to stop this is that it got very politicized, that the idea of the planet heating became a political issue and there was not political will to deal with it. There's now gonna be a push for mitigation measures. White paint is a mitigation measure. Can mitigation be nonpartisan? Can mitigation become a cause that is a human cause not a political cause, and that the world can come together on ways to make life less unpleasant for us.
1: Well, I think the the um, mitigation is a safer place than um, than on the causal end. Like, if you look at where the problem is happening, is happening in a lot of red states, which are getting redder by the day as they get warmer. Um, so something has to be done. Arizona is is a potentially, um, I mean, now has a Democratic governor, and but if you look. At what's happening in Phoenix? I mean, you read the stories about about the heat in Phoenix, um, and the number of deaths, particularly um, of home the homeless population and the poorest in Phoenix. It's just grisly. It feels like you're reading the stories of Arrakis, like a hundred years before. You know, they had to go around um, capturing sweat, and uh, because that was the only water that was left.
0: But I mean, one of the things that strikes me is you. Is that you mentioned the the homeless? I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in in that area yesterday, and he was like, "Oh, it's it's fine." Like he just sits in his air conditioning. And like one of the things I worry about is that this is like so many things. This is a crisis for poor people, a crisis for people who are less resourced. But that the people who are decision makers, I don't think that any member of Congress is going without air conditioning. Have you been on? I mean, the Capitol is one of the coldest places in on Earth. Um, because they air-conditioned that place so well. And I just worry that this idea that it, this could be a wake-up call isn't really there because it's not punishing all of us. It's only punishing a fraction of people.
1: But it is punishing their con- their constituents. So that's then been, I think, the 12th straight day of 110-degree temperatures in Phoenix. Um, Phoenix in the 1900s had five days where the average temperatures were 110 or higher. It's now 27 days, an average of 27 days a year. That's affecting the people who live there. The number of the um, uh, death toll in Phoenix is up twenty five percent over the previous year as a result of heat. I mean, when your constituents are dying, and it's not just the homeless; it's the elderly. Like when the bodies are piling up, um, and the businesses are having to pay more to, to air condition. And um, there is this, you know, there are costs associated back home. And also, by the way, this is something for governors to deal with when when power grids are crumbling. Um, that is a, you know, those are real effects that are, that, that affect governors and that, that that might change again to your original question, which I think was a smart one, which is like, how do we deal with the fact it's hot? Forget about the, forget about what caused it for the moment. How do we deal with how, with the fact that it is hot is a safer political place. Um, although to Maren's point, all the places we thought were safe for, for, um, politics. Because when you look at some of the mitigation measures to save water with faucets or to change light bulbs, those have become politicized. So um, so uh, as I say this, I slightly take it back. But on the other hand, if all your citizens are baking, um, perhaps that changes things.
0: Well, some of them aren't baking, Maren. Some of them are also drowning. Um, so I wonder, You you write a lot about transportation, which is writing about infrastructure. And one of the things that we see with all of the climate chaos is that infrastructure is under this incredible stress. Like places are, when you have flooding that that tears a town apart, it just causes huge amounts of damage. Fires ca- destroy infrastructure, destroy uh, places where people live and work and, and recreate and so forth. I worry we can't keep up with it. It's one thing to recover from a single hurricane and have five years to recover from it. It's another when there's a hurricane, then there's smoke, then there's fire, then there's a flood, then there's a heat wave, and and it's happening everywhere. And the country will not have the resources to keep up with this, and the world won't.
2: I think that's absolutely right. It's, it's going to pose these huge, huge infrastructure challenges. I think that we, first of all, we're not keeping up with the infrastructure challenges that we have now. There's so much crumbling infrastructure in this country. Uh, this is going to expose so many weak points. And uh, yeah, I think the the lesson I took away from reading everything um, is that we're not ready at all for this. Like, none of us are ready. There was some money, I think, in the infrastructure bill to help sort of prepare for the climate future that we're going to see, the near future that we're going to see, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be enough. Um, And, you know, just to go back, so there are the the sort of obvious manifestations of climate change. When we talk about the infrastructure, we see these dams that are near breaking, um, we see bridges being washed away. We see train tracks being washed away. Those are going to be really obvious physical signs that may spark action. I do really worry, to John's point about the heat thing, because, you know, heat, I was reading, causes more deaths than any other weather event in the country, which was sort of surprising to me because it's a little bit less visible, right? And and he's right that people, you know, people in the U.S., the people who don't have air conditioning are you know, disproportionately elderly, they may be low income. I'm thinking of the the comparison with Europe where, you know, only something like 10% of homes are air conditioned there. And I read that 60,000 people died from heat waves last summer. I, that is an astonishing figure. And I do really worry that, you know, the the rise in the homeless and houseless population in this country over the last few years, um, combined with these extreme weather events is that we're going to see more of these deaths and and I would hope that that would inspire some action. I think I've learned to never make strong predictions when it comes to politics, because that's the most surefire way to make a fool of yourself. But I would hope that that would at least inspire some people to take this very seriously as an issue.
0: I think there's about two things. I mean, I worry about all of it, I suppose. But two things that really get to me. One is when you're talking about all the heat deaths, those heat deaths in some sense are invisible. Like they they didn't discover that 61,000 people died In 2022, in 2022, they discovered in 2023 when they went back and looked and realized, oh, we have this excess of deaths. What explains this excess of death? It's that like people were overtaxed and they had heart conditions and they died because they were. It was it was you could attribute this to excess heat, Um, but it's not in the moment. You're not like oh, this person was killed by heat. So some. So one thing that concerns me is a lot of the the pain is invisible and people kind of attribute it to something else and only later realize, oh no, it was this. And the other, the other thing is just to this infrastructure point is or John and I, I don't know about you, Marin, but John and I lived through the seventies. And one of the things that was notable at the seventies is that there are places that, that just started to seem disordered that had not, that were had been ordered before and cities felt disordered. And the one reason they felt disordered is that they were the cities were unable to kind of keep up with the basic habits and, and necessities of making life tolerable for people. So you'd have garbage piling up, you'd have potholes that were too big, uh, you'd have just uh, ab- abandoned buildings, and that just made places feel bad and chaotic and unsafe. And that caused sort of economic decline. And I worry that on a kind of global scale, that's what we're going to get. We're going to get an inability to keep up with the basic maintenance of infrastructure that you need for people to feel they are living in a tolerable place. And that will just make life feel worse as well as be worse. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gabfest, on other Slate podcasts. You get bonus episodes of some Slate podcasts. You get ad-free Slate podcasts. And our uh, Slate Plus segment is one we're really excited about. We've been flattering Marin so much already, but I'm gonna flatter so, so, so one of the other things she's been writing about and has been thinking about is the is the paradox of of traffic enforcement, where we have too much enforcement of against poor people which causes all kinds of misery for them but on the other hand too little enforcement uh, of a lot of traffic problems which is causing contributing to traffic deaths a sense of lawlessness in the streets so how do we deal with the traffic enforcement paradox and anyone who's ever uh, seen someone uh, run a red light or park in a bike lane or drive around with fake plates. If you've ever seen any of that and have been annoyed by it, this will be a segment for you. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus and become a member. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories seeing you what you're up to today checking out grandkids checking out cousins and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving this is how I live in my family I gave my mother an aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday she absolutely adores it she's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos which I do I also gave my girlfriend's mother, an Aura frame, and I hope she Hector's my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms apply. John Dickerson, I'm so interested in your thoughts on this coming topic. So, Threads has arrived. Threads is a, spur, a, a spear hurled by Mark Zuckerberg with his newly massive pecs right at the heart of Elon Musk and Twitter. The fastest growing app in history, Threads has attracted more than 100 million users in a couple of weeks. It's a kind of lightweight ripoff of Twitter mediated through Instagram. Um, with Elon Musk just thrashing and beating and punishing Twitter and alienating longtime users such as say John Dickerson and David Plotz uh, and making the platform way worse, Meta saw the opportunity to steal from Twitter the the role of the the place of public conversation the the town square for really loud people, and it's made huge headlines. It's it's shaken things up. So, John, uh, I'm. You know, you were you were one of the OGs of Twitter. You've been there. You have an enormous following. You've used it with such joy and success over over decades. And now, I'm really interested in your thoughts on Threads and your thoughts on how it could shape or not shape what political discourse is like.
1: Well, Threads at the moment feels like Twitter did back in. Not exactly 2007 when I started, but in the early days, which is less toxic, less consumed by the extremely online, more fun. If there are political conversations, they are more like conversations. They are not immediate motive questioning and bad faith throwing of chum into the water. Um, it just feels like a um, a more pleasant place to be. This doesn't mean that we don't need to pay a lot of attention to um, what. Meta may be up to either a in terms of scraping all of our data for um, AI purposes or the privacy concerns. Um, you know, when you sign up for um threads, it knows what phone you have, what model, when you did it, where you are, that kind of things. So, I don't even know what phone I have, I literally yeah, right? don't know. I what know it phone would, I be have. <laughs> that would be helpful um, they told so, me that would be great, but it's not. Um, so and Twitter has been, um, you know, toxifying and getting just. Worse and feeling more like the old fashioned checkout counter, Um, you know, in the old days when you were a kid and you'd walk through the checkout counter, you'd see like world news. Hillary Clinton has an alien baby. And you'd think like there's this one little three feet of humanity where just insanity, the National Enquirer, world news. It was like occupied by um, total uh, um sort of uh, madness. And that's kind of what Twitter's felt like for a long time. It's still got some useful um, you know, links and that's a place where some news, but it's, it's it 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 just it's so long, it's so far from what it used to be long ago. The question I have for threads is whether it's basically just enjoying a little honeymoon here at the beginning and then a lot of the forces that toxified Twitter. Many of them were introduced by Elon Musk and the users, but um whether those kind of because it's our politics and it reflects our politics if that ends up being what happens on threads then it will infect threads too although they're trying very hard not to make it the public political town square which might be if they can do that the the uh the secret to its success
0: so marin are you on threads are you on are you a twitter person first i'm a
2: I'm a complicated, yeah, my relationship with Twitter is complicated, and I am I am on threads, so I have lots of thoughts. I don't know. I'm really torn because threads does not feel intuitive to me. Like it's hard to use the the feed. I don't know who I'm following. It's just like a bunch of random people posting selfies and like brands that I'm pretty sure I didn't follow. On the other hand, like Twitter is has been a cesspool for me for a really long time. Like if you're a woman, who is a journalist or any other sort of semi-public figure, uh, being on Twitter, you have to be so careful about what you say. It's almost, like, not worth it to post anything beyond links to your stories because there are just tons of, like, bad faith. And I'm sure this is true for you guys, too. I don't mean to exclude you, but, like, there are tons of people out there just, like, waiting to find the most bad faith read of whatever you post and to, like, repost it for clout. So it feels like this would be a good sort of alternative to that. On the other hand, I like don't I just don't understand how Threads works. I'm concerned about the privacy stuff. I will say the one thing that is giving me pause on making a sort of final judgment is that everyone else, like the people who aren't sickos like us who've been on Twitter for over a decade, seem to really like it, and I think that speaks to the fact that maybe they've felt shut out of Twitter or like Twitter is just way too hostile for them. So if we're creating a space for people to um, be able to share their voices. And I do love the idea of having a place where I can just post stupid thoughts.
0: Elon Musk is, is repellent. Um, he's a repellent person. He certainly degraded Twitter for many of us who liked it. But in my view, he's unquestionably a better force in the world than Meta. That Meta via Facebook and via WhatsApp has been the pri- a primary architect for misinformation, for dictatorial thuggishness for bullying for the organization of wickedness uh on in the digital world and all of it all of it coated in this syrupy disgusting syrupy sh- syrup of confection of fraudulent human connection like that they always dress it up like oh we're here for human connection it's like yeah you're here for human connection but you're also enabling really terrible people to do things and encouraging them to do terrible things i kind of feel like it would be tragic if meta which has done so much wrong to the world, also ended up taking over this space of public conversation. As much as I, I find Elon Musk like an unappealing character, it would, to me, be a bummer if Meta also now was the was the conglomerate of this, too.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I guess the other part of it that's disturbing to me, even as I sort of participated, in it, is that there's just this, whenever something new drops there's just this sort of unquestioning rush where we all download it on our phones, right? And then it's like, oh, the data privacy stuff seems bad, but like, everyone's doing it. So like, it must be okay, right? I mean, I felt this way about TikTok, too. It's just, we need to develop a better critical framework as a society, I think, for rushing into these new products. And I guess it does speak to this clamoring people felt for something other than Twitter. But it's surprising that it would be so big. And probably, honestly, it's partly media inflated. Like, Twitter is a really big deal to people in our space, right? It's a really big deal to politicians, to um, journalists, to people who think about this stuff. But it's not, it's not such a big deal to everyone else. So I don't know, maybe the public was dying to have this sort of text-based app. And that's why we all rushed into it. But I do worry about the way we just unthinkingly download these things and sort of check off the agreement, you know, the terms of service agreement, and then give all our data away without thinking that much about it. Um, I will say the other thing, and I hope I'm not changing the subject too much, is that I do really want to see where this cage match between Elon and Zuck goes.
0: Is that for real? Like, they're actually talking about doing this? It is. It's like a joke. It's like something out of a... Like uh, I was
2: reading last night that UFC president Dana White has been on the phone with each of them every night for like a week planning the details of this cage match, which makes me think that it is real. And I also think we should never underestimate um, the ability of a of a billionaire man to dramatically overestimate his capabilities in all things. So I think it could happen. Oh, my God. And I would love to see it.
1: Oh my god. One of the things I was reading um is uh it referred to uh Mark Zuckerberg's own personal journey um of, of fitness and general um excessive manliness as he becomes um skilled in various forms of martial arts and I realize I need a personal journey. I I I'm con- I'm concerned I'm not on a personal journey. His personal journey seems to have made him very, uh, uh, he's all glowing and he's uh, out there grappling on squeaky mats in what seemed to him, seemed to me to be a bounty of joy for him. Turbo John. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I need a personal journey to kind of get me out of the attic. That's the thing. I, maybe my personal journey needs to have more sunlight and, and, uh, although on the, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. It just seemed like there's a lot of smiling that goes on in his personal journey. Can I um, still keep stealing the mic though, which is good to go back to this idea of threads as a place for the public conversation. I And I'm just going to steal completely from Jill Lapore's book, um, These Truths, which doesn't address social media so much, but um, has a wonderful section on polling and the rise of polling and the mistaken idea that um, polls and just getting thousands of unfiltered opinions um, is in any way a replication of the town hall and is a, is a beneficial place to have public political conversation. Um, and her argument essentially is the town halls were mediated squares where first of all, you had to show up where any old rando, um, um, there were, they, they could pop off, but, um, there were, um, kind of norms of the culture that, um, that meant people who participated had to actually participate. You know, you couldn't um, just, winging out um, theories wouldn't get you very far. That you had to really engage in, and engaging in meant treating the other side with, uh, at least with assuming good faith at the beginning. Um, It meant a whole set of rules for debate and conversation um, that that the current people who mistake social media for the town hall just totally forget. But one of the
0: despondent, dis- demoralizing things that's happened in Amer- the American public life is we actually do have a lot of real-world public square now, too. And people say, oh, it's just, it's just the internet. People are trollish on the internet, and there's assholes on Twitter. But then you look at what's happened in school board meetings across the country and in town meetings across the country, where there are these places where people are meant to gather and calmly deliberate and discuss the issues that that their their community faces and those meetings have also degenerated into they've essentially degenerated into to the same kind of vile spew that that is uh, all over our online online life so the hope that real that the real world could protect us from the online world i think is is fading fast in fact the online world has infected the real world too
1: I just, I guess I was just t- 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 tangling with the idea that this is a, that this, that online is going to be the place where, um, this kind of conversation could take place. And also you've got to have politicians listen to that kind of conversation and they're not, they're listening to, uh, you know, the, the attention grabbing conversation, which is not deliberative.
0: Two questions to get us out of this, Marin. So if you look at the history of these hot new apps, if you think about Clubhouse or there was Google plus, which was going to be a social network, um, they, a lot of times they don't survive. There're ones that do. TikTok has survived. Although TikTok wasn't it wasn't a rocket ship. TikTok had a slow burn. It has slow build. What makes you think that Threads will or will not last?
2: Honestly, I don't think we know. I think it's way too soon to say. I mean, certainly there was this big rush and everyone signed up for it, but remember when everyone signed up for Clubhouse? I mean, it didn't even it, that felt like such a blip ultimately. So Uh, I think for threads to stick around, it has to be good. It has to be intuitive to use. It has to be easy to use. It has to give people what they want. Um, I think so far for me, it's not delivering on certain things. Like it's harder to connect. Um, You know, there's no DM function. There's no search function. So those are the things that I think it would need to succeed. But again, I will say that like tons of people who have rushed onto it, who I think were not traditional Twitter users seem to be loving it. So if they can find an audience in the people who were more traditionally on Instagram or Facebook, uh, then it could do really well. But I do think it's like way too soon to call it a Twitter killer. And
0: John, actually, then the last question of that, which is just a flip side, is what could Twitter do to save itself now?
1: I, it's a great question. And then also, what is the question? So in other words, do they, does Twitter want to have a hundred million users the way Threads does, or does Twitter want to become an intense place, smaller audience, but intense audience? It's definitely a smaller audience. 28% of their revenue has been, has gone down, um, or at the moment. But they have for,
0: way more than a hundred million, by the way. I mean, Twitter has 250 million daily actives, I think,
1: but but Meta has two billion and is on I mean it's at a hundred million in a week, fastest uptake of an app since chat GPT, which is the fastest uptake of an app since ever. so it's on its way um uh I don't know, so I don't know a whether it's its goal is to be big and have everybody in the pool or have it just be as super intense place um, and what's better for ads. It doesn't seem to be better. Its intensity has not been good for ads, 28% lower in ad revenue than last year, according to eMarketer. If they wanted to get better, I think there is, first of all, Maren's point is really great about the unthinking rush into threads. It's amazing. When people talk about the dangers of AI, they say, you know, We unthinkingly rushed into social media and we really should pause. So here we are in this hyper frenetic moment of pausing about AI and the new social media thing comes along and suddenly everybody drops their trousers and goes running out into the street and is all like, it's just, we, we, we really have these appetites.
2: I will say Elon said, I think maybe this week or last week, oh, it's infinitely more preferable to get yelled at by a bunch of strangers on Twitter than the than the sort of hide it all pain of Instagram. And I was like, Completely disagree, dude. Like, <laughs> I, I would rather take the place where people are pretending that things are pleasant and nice than being yelled at by a bunch of strangers. Like, it's a no brainer for me. So I, don't, I question his his sense of what people want.
1: Also, it seems to be a total admission of what Twitter has become. You know, it's like, I mean, you, I think you want to ixnay on the hellscape, a eh? you know, instead of saying no, no, the hellscape is great because it's all paved. <laughs> You know, right? The weather is so warm right, down here. Exactly. It's wonderful. Uh, exactly. I like shorts anyway.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? oh a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Jum-a. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase and by law, 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Marin covers transportation for Vox, among other things. And this has given her a front seat on some of the most fascinating, contentious issues in American public policy life. And as we discussed, her piece on the most dangerous street in America for pedestrians prompted the top Gabfest conversation of 2022. She has a new piece out: um, "The Impossible Paradox of Car Ownership for Many Working-Class Americans: Cars Are a Burden and a Necessity." So, Marin Gabfest listeners, I think in in public transit rich cities may think of cars as a kind of stupid and e- stupid and egregious, but. They are the most necessary possession of most American households. After shelter, the car is a requirement. You have the stat, which is that 92% or 91.3% of American households have a car, more than I'm sure have anything else, more than a broadband. The problem is that it's become harder to own them, right?
2: Yeah, and I will say sometimes in some of the conversations I've had sometimes the car is even more important than the shelter because in many cases the car becomes the shelter, right? Certainly in the case of the woman that I was writing about when she was really struggling, she was sleeping in her car. So, yeah, I mean it's it's a funny there's a funny disconnect, you know. And if, if you live in a transit-rich place, um, you know, you may see all the downsides of cars and think they're sort of an annoyance and they're expensive and whatever, but For most people living in most of the U.S., your car is essentially your ticket to being a fully functioning adult in the United States. It's your ticket to participating in American life. Um, You can't get a good paying job without a car, usually, especially if you are working class or low income and you live far away from a city where the housing is affordable, right? You need a car to get to work, to get a good paying job, to get groceries, to get medical care, to move your family around, um, the car is everything. And and I think, you know, that has always been true. And cars have always been expensive for people who don't have a ton of money, right? Like if you pretty much since the car was invented, it's going to eat up a decent portion of your budget. Um, if you don't, you know, if you don't have a ton of money, but During the pandemic, when everyone sort of moved away from mass transit because there were were concerns about being in closed spaces with people, the cars became even more important. They unfortunately became much, much more expensive. So when I talk about the paradox, the impossible paradox of car ownership, and this is primarily for people who are working class and low income, the paradox is... You can't really afford a car, but you can afford not to have a car. And so sort of looking at the way prices have risen um, in the last three years and just how difficult it is for people to maintain their cars, hold on to their cars, and not just that, but it's not just the car. Like the car, for many people, is about their ability to survive in this country. So writing about the way that a car can play a huge role in whether or not you're doing well or not um, was sort of the point of this piece.
0: Can you give some some chapter and verse on the costs and how they have become more expensive.
2: Absolutely. So um, new car prices themselves have risen so much that a new car, The average new car is about $48,000 right now. Now, the reason that is happening is because there's this global microchip shortage, right? And all the auto manufacturers, they used to make a lot of sort of affordable cars, smaller cars, more affordable um, cars at different price points for a different range of buyers. Increasingly, because of this microchip shortage, they are – and because – you make more profits when you build luxury cars, right? They're focusing on these big luxury SUVs, trucks, these nice, big, expensive cars. Um, And so that's driven the average price of a new car up. So what's happened now is most people can't afford a new car, right? So they're turning to the used car market. Um, So between, I think it was May 2020 and May 2023, the average price of a new car rose 25%. The, and that turned everyone onto the used car market, which drove demand way up. So now the average price of a used car between 2020 and 2023 rose 50%. So it's just kind of mind boggling. And, you know, this is one of these things that it's sort of happening in all of our lives. And, and we all sort of vaguely know, like anyone who tried to buy a car in the last few years noticed the prices were really high. Um, but I feel like unlike other things, we we don't necessarily talk about this stuff because it is just considered so... Essential to how most people get around. It's like it's almost too obvious to say that e- that most people need a car to get around. But when you start to break down the numbers, um, I think it becomes much more striking.
1: Maron, do you think that the the outrage over gas prices, which is there, is always an outrage over gas prices? But the the outrage a, a year ago um, when prices were at their height was really a a debate or, or outrage about what this paradox you're talking about that it that it. That it got at this centrality of the car and the challenges you write about, but through gas prices, um, which obviously are connected to cars, but I I don't know. Did did it have extra energy because of what you're talking about?
2: That's a great question. I would say the answer is probably yes and no. I mean, the gas prices thing is like a perennial political issue, because it is something that affects everyone, right? And it's sort of easy to glom onto and blame whoever's in charge. And uh, it's something that like will reliably upset people in the opposite party, right? So I think that part is always there. Um, but I do think there was an undercurrent of the fact that it's not just gas prices, right? It's also insurance rates um, are higher than they've ever been. There are just so many different things that go with car ownership and the price of cars in general. So I think people were responding on some level to the fact that there's this sort of background noise of things getting more and more expensive. And certainly it's true beyond just cars, right? Food prices, so many other prices. But um, it's really, I mean, it's really striking the the differences in price um, with cars right now. And I think, yeah, I think that had to have play, played a part in it.
0: The premise of your piece in some ways, I, I mean, I'm not, I guess I'm not saying it's an advocacy piece, but kind of the premise is we need to get cars into the hands of poor Americans, like poorer Americans, working class Americans need to get cars. Does this mean that as, a, as citizens, we shouldn't root for more buses and trains? If everyone actually needs a car, should the investment in public transit be as significant as people like me want it to be?
2: I'm really happy you asked me this because um, part of my purpose in writing this. I've, I've written a lot about why cars are bad. And this is sort of a counterbalance piece. I see it in, in some sort of ways, like actually cars are good for certain segments of the population. Um, but it is true. There there are some people who advocate for more cars for low income people. And there are, there are a lot of critics of this idea. Like they, they think that, you know, um, cars are not the answer, obviously. And if you give cars to low-income people you're just reinforcing a system that disproportionately punishes um, poor and low-income americans anyway right because there's still going to be people without cars who struggle cars are still going to be too expensive you're not addressing the systemic problem so what i would say is um no it doesn't mean we shouldn't be pushing for better mass transit we should be pushing for a system and i think the top priority should be pushing for a system that is more sustainable and more affordable and gives people better options than having to get in their car everywhere, right? That would be better for all of us. Um, And I think most of us could stand to drive less, right? But there is a segment of the population that if we deny car ownership to, we are essentially locking them out of the economy. And I think that we need to listen to people who are struggling about where they're at. They're in the system that we have now, not the sort of utopian transit future that we all wanna see. Um, we need to listen to them about what they need to survive. And we need to understand that we can, m- while most of us should be driving less, there are certain people whose lives can be majorly improved by having access, even just access to a car, and that will make their lives better. I think we can, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time on that.
0: I was struck, I mean, you've already made this point, uh, Maren, but I was also struck by the way, how analogous this is to the affordable housing debate. That the lack of a car has a lot of the same impacts on people's lives as the lack of steady housing. You are you drop further and further down the economic ladder. Your children are at risk. You have this precariousness. You have difficulty securing work. Um, and this is true if you don't have stable housing. It's true if you don't have a stable stable access to a car. Um, that's just a, It's not really a question. It's just like it is interesting how analogous it is.
2: It's interesting to me, too. And I think a big part of why the car has become so necessary is that we've suburbanized poverty in this country, right? We're pushing people further and further and further out from city centers where there's good access to public transit. And just thinking about, you know, honestly, all of the all of the things we're talking about today, you can see the threads connecting everything, right? Like people being pushed further out, not having as good of access to to social services and cities, Um, all the paved suburbs, right, that we've created that are contributing to climate change, the way low-income people have less access to air conditioning. Like all of these things are interconnected. Um, And I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just really striking to me the way they all start to piece together. And that was a big thing with this piece is that, you know, on, on some level, I was talking to people about cars, which sounds, yeah, cars, it's like, not the most exciting topic in the world. But I was really talking to them about what it means to survive. And so many of these people I spoke to, losing access to their car, having their car repossessed, it was tied in with some other major crisis in their life, like they were leaving an abusive marriage and trying to start over with young kids, or they were struggling with addiction and entering rehab, or, you know, they were essentially homeless and only had the car, you know, so it's, it's, it's a car, but it's much bigger. It's what you need to survive here.
0: I'm just to close this. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys know the song "Fast Car." I don't know if you've heard the Luke Combs. Luke Combs, this wonderful country singer, is just on a cover of the Tracy Chapman song "Fast Car." It's so good, and it's and just reminder of what a wonderful song that is. But that song is your story. That song is about the possibility of a car offering economic opportunity, escape, like uh, the chance to make it.
3: I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast to feel like I was drunk. See you last out before, and your arm fell nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I had a feeling that I
1: belong I had a feeling I could be someone. If
0: you haven't listened to the Luke Combs cover, listen to it. It's gorgeous. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. Uh, when, when you are, um, not about to get into your car, you're about to have a cocktail. So you are not about to get into your car. Um, I was just in Scotland and was out and I was driving, which is terrifying to drive in Scotland on the wrong side of the road. Um, but I had to check to see whether you were allowed to drink at all before you got into a car in Scotland. Cause I was driving and I wanted to have like one drink and you can, um, but in general, you shouldn't drink before you get into a car. You John, mean what do you, alcohol, you
1: blood alcohol yeah. level is zero. It has to be zero.
0: It does it? I was asking, and the the waiter at the restaurant said it does not have to be zero. Okay. In Scotland. I don't – he said this is not legal advice. I was going to say, would, as long
2: as so
1: you that. got it from an authority, as long as you
2: got it from a <laughs> yes, trusted exactly. authority, I think
1: it's ah, fine. Let me go to the <laughs> – let me ask the barman about whether having a drink is a good idea on the road. Uh, um, my what's cocktail, your chatter? <laughs> my cocktail chatter is – um. At our live show, I quoted Rich Lowry of the National Review uh, writing in Politico about the dilemma facing the Republican Party. And he said basically that the challenge for Republicans is that they are growing more attached to a candidate who is going to be harder to elect, which is just kind of the short sentence way of thinking about what's happening in the Republican race. If you don't have time to think about it more than that, the Pew Research um, Center put out some data on the 2022 race, which um, ratifies this I this point. And it found two things. One, when you look at who voted in the last 2020 presidential election, 68% of those who voted in that election turned out in the midterms. And in, in in that cohort, Trump's voters voted at a higher rate, 71% than Joe Biden's voters, 67%. So intensity was on the side of the Republicans. So just like what's happening now, very intense attachment to a candidate. But that intensity of attachment to their own uh, worldview had a downside, which is in the midterm elections. Democrats won independence by two points. Now, you wouldn't think two points, that's a huge victory. But when you are the party in power of the White House, usually you don't do so well in the midterms. In fact, Democrats, who were the out party in 2018, won independence by 15 points. So you would have expected, going by historical data, that Republicans would have won, Republicans as the out party would have won independence uh, in 2020 two by 15 points and said they lost them by, um, two. Why did they lose them by two? Abortion and Trump, two things that the party is ever more, um, uh, centered around as it goes into this next presidential race. So that data came out this, uh, this week from the Pew Research Center.
0: Maren, what's your chatter?
2: I'm going to bring this into the sort of more mid to low brow uh, portion of the cocktail chatter. I want to talk about the Tour de France, which I have been obsessed with. Uh, I don't know. Are either of you watching it? You
0: already steal. You're stealing my chatter? Oh, no, I stole go your chatter.
2: God.
0: Go ahead. Bring it. We'll, we'll just share it. Well, I, I'm
2: I'm sorry, but I'm obsessed. It's it. all, I mean, it's the only non car thing I want to talk about, I think, forever. I watched that <laughs> Netflix documentary like two weeks before the tour started and just. Kind of became obsessed with all of these figures and am having so much fun um, watching it every morning. It's been so exciting this year.
1: What? No Wimbledon?
2: No Wimbledon, not this year.
0: I too, one of the things I did on vacation with my kids is we watched Tour de France Unchained, the Netflix show. We've talked about Drive to Survive, but that was the F1 show, the documentary, beautifully, beautifully shot documentary about Formula One. And this is the same thing, has now been done for golf, it's been done for tennis, and it's now been done for for the Tour de France and my god it was so good the 2022 Tour de France it's so beautiful and unlike F1 it's not the cyclists are are not loathsome they're not kind of douchebag euro trash prince lanes and they're not the the, the people who run the cycle lane are not loathsome russian oligarchs cyclists are they're weird they're intense they're both ego they're both egotistical but also collegial they're all like
2: 25 that- and weigh 130 pounds and have two children mm-hmm. i i mean it like it's baffling to me that i think they just it's live so these Flemish. yeah these like monastic lives where they're just cycling in the mountains of europe every single day but it's it's super fun to watch and learn the different personalities and it's given me a, an appreciation for watching these races where you see how much of it is it's it is about strength and stamina, certainly, but it's also very much a mind game and a strategy game. Um, I, I don't know if you watched uh, Jasper Philipson yesterday win the stage but the way he pulled off his final sprint. I mean, it's like, it's almost like a game of Tetris or something where you're trying to like find these openings and you have to just have killer instincts to win one of these things. And it's so cool to watch like someone will be leading the whole time, and then it won't matter cuz in the last like 30 seconds someone just pops out of nowhere that you've never heard of and wins the whole thing. Oh, it's delightful.
0: I think I think the thing that I like also is that it when you first start to watch it if you have no explanation, the strategy is totally incomprehensible and you kind of don't know what's going on. But just a little bit of information makes it comprehensible and you and then you are no longer an ignorant viewer, but a kind of a semi knowledgeable viewer. And that is, is really fun. I do think yeah, you have I, to
2: watch the documentary first though, right? Yes. Because yeah, otherwise yeah. you won't know yeah. who these people are. I mean, it's great because yeah. it sort of gives you these portraits of the people who are sort of the people that you want to watch in this year's tour. So like it, you get like a little bit of story and background about them and then you can sort of root for them this year.
0: Listeners, you have also sent us chatters. Uh, please keep them to coming to us. You should, uh, tweet them at us, I guess you could thread them to it. We're not on threads, so don't thread them to us yet, but maybe one day you can thread your chatter to us. Um, But best of all, email them to us at gabfestedslate.com, something you're talking about at your cocktail party. And this week's listener chatter comes from Dan Kirkwood.
3: Hey, this is Dan Kirkwood in Juneau, Alaska. Last week, kids in Angoon, Alaska launched a 30-foot-long, hand-carved red cedar canoe, the first traditional dugout canoe carved there since the U.S. Navy bombardment that destroyed the village. Back in the fall of 1882, the U.S. Navy destroyed the homes, food stores, and dugout canoes used to hunt, fish, and gather food. Many people starved to death that winter. Only one canoe survived the bombing, and it became both a vehicle and a symbol of the village's survival. The new boat went into the water after a naming ceremony. The kids paddled the canoe in their traditional regalia in front of the whole community. The name that the kids chose for the boat translates to unity. The community is still seeking an apology for the bombing, and this made me think of the David Plotz rule for apologies, that a good apology should be absolute. I do
0: think that about apologies. Unconditional. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio of Slate. Please email us your chatter at GabFest at Slate.com. For Marin Kogan, so great having you. Definitely, you should come back again and again.
2: Oh, thank you. Anytime. So fun.
0: And John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How are you doing? Marin, you do have the best beat in the world with transportation its woes. And you were we were talking about what to do about Slate Plus, and you mentioned you're working on on a piece about how traffic enforcement is fundamentally broken. I really want to talk about this because I am obsessed with all the ways in which it feels shitty to drive in my city, Washington, DC, and all the ways in which people are abusing systems, but also recognizing that um the traffic enforcement is also very bad for a certain class of people. So so start 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 spitting some wisdom here
2: yeah. So I'm I'm obsessed with this too, having, you know, lived in DC for many years and having noticed how crazy it's gotten. I mean, I can't remember if I told you guys this last time, but my uh, home office sits over a four-way stop. And so a big part of why I started writing about this is just that I noticed in 2020 that cars were just flying through the four-way stop. And now that is the norm rather than the exception. Like no one stops at the stop signs anymore. And thinking about why that is, and it's like, well, it's, because people are behaving rationally with the understanding that nothing will happen if they violate traffic laws. So this is something I'm sure you guys have seen it. Um, People just plowing through red lights, not bothering to slow down, um, behaving really recklessly, driving really recklessly. That's been sort of a big coverage focus of mine. But then just starting to think about how can we do this better? Because I started digging into the traffic enforcement that we have system that we've had in this country for many years. And it's terrible. It's it's disproportionately impacting um, black and brown communities. Uh, it really unfairly punishes the poor. We have the system now where if you get a speeding ticket and you're like a rich person, you can just sort of pay it and go on with your life and maybe your behavior won't be deterred because it wasn't that much money. Or if you are poor and you don't have the money to pay, you could end up with escalating debt. You could even end up in prison for not being able to pay that debt. Right. And um, it doesn't really help people if they don't have the money to pay. They don't have the money to pay. Right. And you have to do really horrible things to people to punish them for the fact that they don't have any money to pay. So terrible system that we have now. And it's the thing that has, you know, Um, led to a lot of these incidents of police brutality that have gone viral and that we've seen in the news. So there's been a lot of focus on reforming some of these practices. On the other hand, we seem to have this this new system or lack of system that has emerged where it's just like, I think it seems that police have largely given up in certain places on enforcing anything. And so drivers are reacting to that new reality where you can do basically whatever you want. So I, I feel like there has to be Something in between these two systems. One is unfairly punitive, and it's over things like broken tail lights or an expired license or something like that. And one where we're just not um, helping address safety issues at all. And it's it's something that would be between that would be actually just focusing on safety. So people who are driving really really fast, um, people who are driving really recklessly, people who are um, driving under the influence, like David in Scotland, uh, just really focusing. <laughs> focusing on the bad actors like David and just really making sure we get them off the road. No, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, that's, that's the thing I've been thinking about. And you've, you've seen these crashes that happen where you're like, how did this get to this point? Like, we got to do this better and smarter and more equitably.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today